If you, none of you know me, my name is Jamie McNeil. Uh, most of you have probably seen me preach uh, a few times, or for those of you who haven't, uh, I'm usually up in the media booth, uh, working with the, the band to make it sound as awesome as possible for you guys. Uh, and I have the privilege of preaching this morning. <coughs> and that being said, it's, it's always an honor to be up here. It's always great to be able to be in front of you guys and, and tell you what God has put on my hearts. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to <coughs> talking this morning, but I, I want to start off by saying in all sermons that I preach, uh, I try to be a little transparent with, with my life, with my fears, with my worries and my hopes, and today is one of those times where uh, it's a little bit harder for me, but uh, a few months ago, my wife and I started a small group in my home, uh, and when we first started that small group, uh, the very first session, we talked about how we wanted things to look uh, over the next coming years, and one of the promises that I made to them and to myself is that uh, I was going to be as honest and transparent as possible because me holding back my fears and my worries and my life experiences doesn't do any good for me and it doesn't do any good for anyone else. Uh, and that process and that group has helped me grow and learn more than I thought possible. It's only been a few short months, but already I watched my life change, my relationship with my wife grow, my relationship with my friends grow, and we're at a level where we can be real and communicate with each other and have a deep impact in each other's lives. So before I get started, I want to encourage you all to, one, try the same. Uh, find someone around you. Find a small group of people around you who are worthy of trust and lay everything in your life on the table for them and talk through things with them and live life with them. And two, if you don't have anyone like that yet, find people who are worthy of your trust because a small group setting uh, a group of friends who you meet with on a regular basis and talk to about important things in your life, talk to about scripture, talk to about all things God and all things holy is incredibly important for your walk with God. Before we get started, I want you all to do something for me, and I'll come back to this way later, but I want you to, if you have a piece of paper or if you want to steal a tithe envelope or something like that, just take something out to write with, uh, and if you don't want to write it down, you can imagine it, but write down, if you knew that today was the last day that you got to live, how would you live it? And it can be as specific as you want. It can be as vague as you want. Just try to honestly imagine uh, if today was the last day that you got to live, how would you want to spend it? How would you want to spend your last hours on earth? And again, I'll come back to that later, but if you don't want to write it down, try to think of it and keep it in the back of your head. So a little over a year ago, on June 26, 2018, my wife and I found out that she was pregnant. And I genuinely can't think of a happier time in my life. Lindsay had an awesome way to surprise me, and uh, she had plans ready on how to tell our parents and ways that we could secretly record them and watch their reactions. And we did these amazing little secret things to reveal it to my parents, and their reactions were priceless, and we had them all on camera. And the next 10 weeks were filled with uh, excitement and planning and just hope for what was coming. This was the happiest time of my life, probably the most exciting for both my wife and myself. And we began to look at our future and plan how it would be. 
And I began to imagine what it would be like to hold my child for the first time, uh, and we began to celebrate daily the new life we were so excitedly expecting. On August 8th, we had an appointment to hear our baby's heartbeat for the first time. And we went into the doctor's office, and they couldn't hear anything. Uh, We had different midwives and nurses and doctors try different tests uh, to figure out if they were missing something, and then finally the ultrasound confirmed that our children's heart had stopped. And they didn't know how and they didn't know why. All they could tell us is that we would have had twins and both of their hearts stopped at around 10 weeks. And in one sentence, those happiest, most joyful, most exciting memories and videos and recordings that we had turned into some of the saddest, most disappointing, most difficult memories and recordings. And I had two thoughts after this, right? Because your life changes. It swings so drastically towards happy and then so drastically towards sad in the other way. It it puts you off edge. It messes with your head a little bit. And I, and I had two thoughts. The first one was, how can I get my life back on track? And how can I make sure to get as much out of this life as possible? Because I realized for the first time in my life at that moment that my life was fleeting and the lives around me were fleeting and that at some point my family was going to die and my friends were going to die and I was going to die. And that hit hard. And it hit harder than it should have. I began to prioritize and plan on when things need to happen. And I began to have these panic attacks around the thought of death. Death of myself, death of family, death of loved ones. And lamentations rung in my head. Woe is me. What's the point? Why does this have to happen? What if I? What if they? Why should I? Why should they? Thoughts of losing everything would consume me as I fell asleep. I would panic and I would worry and I would fear for pretty much everything that could be feared for. And I couldn't take enjoyment out of the same things as before. And if I wasn't constantly entertaining myself and doing something and moving forward, then I viewed it as lost time, wasted time. That time didn't matter. Why did I waste that time? I wasn't living my life for eternity. I was living my life for me, for now. I was simply existing, but terrified of losing my existence. And I watched as my life became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Panic and pain replaced joy and love, and I was left with this ever-present, ever-difficult question, what if I don't get to live out everything that I desired in this life? What if death takes it away? And honestly, my process of recovery is much longer than it should have been or needed to be as a Christian. And I don't think I I fully recovered until one night as I was falling asleep in one of these panic-stricken states. uh, I woke up with the verse, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life in my head. I sat up, read the verse, I made notes, and I went back to bed. And I realized that I was losing my life. But what I realized even more is that this tragedy had pushed me further down a path that I had already been on, and I didn't even realize it. 
I thought back to my prayers over the past years, my actions, my hopes, my longings, what I was striving towards, what moves I made in, in, in my life, and, and I realized that no matter how good and holy they may have looked at the surface, at their core, they were selfish because I was following through with the plans that I had for my life. And when this tragedy happened, it threw me off and I realized that I was never going to have a hold and a grasp over my life because that's not possible. And I was upset and I was sad and it threw me into this depression. Trials and challenges had become something to me not to overcome and grow from, but to avoid at all costs. They were a plague that continually made me ask, why do I have to go through this? And I realized my life, my actions, and my desires were all about me, and I realized that that had to change. So again, I'm going to read to you John 12, 25. It says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So what strikes me about this verse off the bat, besides the impact it had on me, is that Jesus said this as his death was approaching. Death was right around the corner for him. He knew it was coming, and he still encouraged his disciples to always trust God and live for the plans that he had for them. Verse 27 continues, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, this is what we are called to, and this is who we're called to imitate. There are points in my life where I feel like I'm not even willing to give up a few hours or a weeknight or a few moments of my time because I have too much going on or I want to just take care of me or I just need to relax or I've had a busy day. The temptation will always be there to live a, a convenient Christian life, but at its core, the Christian life isn't convenient. When difficulty comes, it's easy to pray, God, save us from this. And when opportunity arises from God, it's easy to turn down in today, today's day and age because we have, quote-unquote, too much going on. We're just too busy. I just need a break. I just need some me time. I don't know why it's so hard sometimes to trust that God knows what's best for us. And I don't know why it's so hard to act on that. God has always and will always be faithful. He has always proven himself. But for some reason, it's so hard to deny ourselves and so easy to live selfishly no matter how much pain it causes. But that is what we're called to, a selfless life pursuing Christ. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The weird part about that verse is Jesus said that long before his crucifixion. I think it's easy for us to read that and understand, oh, he's saying pick up his cross and follow me because Jesus picked up his cross and took it to the hill and was crucified on it. But he said that long before his trial was even on the table, long before crucifixion was in the picture, long before Judas betrayed him, he said to his disciples, anyone who's going to follow me needs to pick up their cross, needs to deny themselves daily and follow me. If I was a disciple and I heard that, that's just weird. All right, I would say okay and move on. Just keep going forward, right? If I said to you guys, like, grab a noose and let's go, 
it would be, it'd be a weird, weird way for me to uh, say, follow me. But that's what he did. He said, pick up your cross, follow me, deny yourself daily. And then I'm sure that those words rang in the disciples' heads as they watched Jesus carry his own cross to the hill and be crucified on it. I'm sure they thought, this is what Jesus is calling me to. They want me to, he wants me to pick up my cross. He wants me to do this every day. So that being said, I want to talk about what loving my life is versus what's hating my life, because that's, that's what the question is. Really, Jesus doesn't explain. He just says, anyone who loves his life loses it. Anyone who hates his life will have eternal life and moves forward. Just in the awesome way that Jesus taught, didn't really explain it and just kept going. So I want to talk about what loving our life is versus what hating our life is. And to do that, I want to talk about uh, Paul and uh, his communication with the Corinthian church. And then I'll talk a little bit about Paul communicating uh, to the Philippians and the Thessalonians and kind of compare and contrast them. So first, loving my life. Paul says in Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. All this and the rest of Corinthians shows us that uh, these people, the uh, people of Corinth in this church, were using God's gifts without the love of God. In other words, they were taking what God had given them, taking the gifts that God had given, and were using them selfishly. We see this throughout the New Testament, right? Simon tries to buy God's power from the disciples. Ananias and Sapphira uh, die because they gave false donations to the church. And Corinth used their gifts and freedom given by God for personal gain and attention from the world rather than to actually bring glory the name of God. We see it today. We try to buy God's grace and God's forgiveness with our actions and our deeds, right? Like, I'm a good person, God. Why can't I have good things happen to me? We donate charitably because we feel guilty, right? We're going through the checkout line at the supermarket and someone says, do you want to donate a dollar to Jimmy Fund? And you're like, oh, they're going to judge me if I say no. So you hit yes and you go on about your day. And we make spectacles of ourselves to get praise for our good deeds. If you didn't know, there's a running trend, mainly on YouTube, but on all forms of social media, that these internet celebrities, these internet personalities, they're called influencers, uh, will take money or gifts or food and record themselves handing it out to homeless people or record themselves doing, quote-unquote, good deeds And they'll say, like, look how awesome I am. I'm helping this guy out. Like, look at this. Let's see the homeless guy's reaction when I give him 20 bucks. Oh, let's see this. And they'll just take money around and keep recording them until they get good enough videos to put it online. Right? Like, that's the trend is that charity needs to have an audience. And we we might not be doing that. We might not be posting videos of ourselves doing good deeds on social media. But at its core, 
it is so tempting today to not want to do what's good and what's right unless we're getting praise, thanks, and admiration for it. In a world where getting what we want is considered the most important thing, it's easy to twist the rules, twist what God gives us, or even twist God's words to serve us. The Pharisees were well known for this, and we see people twisting Scripture on the news almost every day, but we often fail to see the small things in ourselves. I'm going to give you a few small examples, and they are small, but it kind of gives us a glimpse of where our hearts and our heads are at. I often hear people almost brag about uh, getting stuff for free because somebody messed up at the store, right? You, you, you go home and you're like, the cashier didn't even charge me for this. Isn't that awesome? Or like, they gave me the wrong change. I kept the 10. Uh, or, you know, Amazon shipped it to the wrong address, so I just kept it. I've heard that dozens of times in my life. And one example, I, I have a, a close friend and he had an apartment with a few few guys, and I went over to watch a movie one night, and the friend comes in, and he's got a really expensive item with him, and they're all like, whoa, where'd you get that? Like, did you buy that? Like, you wasted money on that? And he was like, no, dude, the cashier gave it to me for free. And uh, and we go, oh, cool, like, you ca- just gave it to you for free? He's like, yeah, he's my friend. He just handed it to me. He said, don't worry about it. And I was like, cool, and I left. And uh, I said, what store did you go to? He told me the name of the store, and I was like, oh, well, what was the cashier's name? And he's like, Bob. It's like, cool, my aunt owns that store. And you watched as his face goes white because he had this moment where he thought, look at the good fortune that I'm having. Look at this awesome gift that I just got. And in one moment he realized, I just stole from Janie's aunt. It is so easy, it is so easy to look at the temptation of good things are happening to me, that means it's good, I'm going to let it happen, rather than is this right or holy? Do I need to deny myself and say, no, I'm paying for that? One funnier example, I currently manage a, a pet store in the area, and um, the amount of people who come in and uh, with their dogs, and their dogs... Uh, do their business on the floor and they'll kind of like look around and see if anybody saw and just scoot out because they don't want to have to deal with it. But some people get really like kind of upfront with it almost like, no, you're going to deal with that, not me. So there was this one night where I was having a uh, really, really busy night and uh, there's a, a lady taking her dog out from the, from the hotel that the dog just stayed at and uh, she's walking out the front door and the dog just stops and does his business right on the floor, right there, and she looks over at me and looks me in the eye, and then just walks out the front door. (laughs) And in in reality, it's not that that big of a deal for me to have to to do that at work, but like the, the audacity for some people to say this, no, I'm not dealing with this, and just walk away, right? There's so many, there's, the examples can go on and on, like if we get a can of uh, carton of ice cream and realize we don't need it, we just put it back on the shelf behind the Fruit Loops and just walk away, and then some cashier finds it a week later with curdled milk. Um, but all these small examples of sh- living for yourself, living for you, living for us, rather than what's doing, doing what's right and what's holy and what's good because it's convenient and easy at the time. Like I said, of course, these are small examples, but they show us where our head and our heart are at. The bigger examples are something that we have to each examine for ourselves. 
but it's easy to let the temptation of selfishness outweigh the reality that what we are doing is wrong at its core. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-12, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul saying, this is not for outside of the church. I'm talking to you about inside of the church. You are to associate with the sexually immoral and the idolaters and the swindlers. These are the, you need to be in the world. He goes on to say, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunken, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, Paul's calling out two things here. First, he's calling out those lifestyles, right? Sexual morality, drunkard, all that. He's saying, this is not good. If you are a Christian, you can't live this lifestyle. And I want to point out <coughs> that one of the things listed is reviler. And that is someone who criticizes in an abusive or angrily insulting manner and or spreads negative information. So my first thoughts go to road, road rage and Facebook comments and uh, forums and conversations with people that is completely based on complaining. Did you see this? Isn't this guy crazy? Don't you just hate this person? Isn't this so annoying? Paul takes a reviler and makes them equal to those committing sexual immorality. And it's so easy to read over that passage and say, say okay, I'm not doing sexual morality. I'm not a drunkard. Cool. And we move forward. And we don't stop and examine what he is calling us to do, how he is calling us to live in purity and holiness in all areas, not just the big ones. But second, he is talking to the people who let their friends live in this state knowing it's not what's right. Now, these issues were so severe uh, in Corinth that Paul had to say, can't even eat with them. That's it. Separate yourself. And that advice was specific to that church because of the severity of their issues. And I doubt he would give the same today to most churches without seeing if they had gone through a process of helping that person recover and get better. We're not called to just excommunicate people when they do something wrong. But if we go through a process of trying to help the people around us and help our friends, they are bound to improve. But if we let them live these lifestyles that are bad for them and bad for the people around them and bad for us, then we are just as guilty as they are because we are to seek what is good for the church and for the body of Christ and for our neighbors, not just what's good and easy for ourselves. In short, loving our life means ignoring the right thing to do because we don't think it'll benefit us or we just don't want to do it. It means living selfishly, living for us. It means deciding to ignore God's plan or deciding to follow ours. And now a distinction needs to be made that if we decide not to follow God's plan and to follow ours, 
we are saying no to what God has for us, right? Us making a choice that isn't what God has for us is saying, no, God, I'm not doing that. It's not just us getting to make the choice. Paul goes so, as so far as to say, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, and that is what we are called to live up to. That is the expectation that is set forth for us in the Bible. So, if that's loving my life, what is hating my life? And I want to read two verses to show you that. The first is in 1 Thessalonians. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Right? Paul's saying, it doesn't matter how happy the world is with us. All that matters is that we're serving God. For we, know, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext of greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ's. But we, are, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Paul goes through and he says, listen, we could have made demands of you for, for money. We could have had you give us housing. We could have had you take care of us. And all we would have done is come here and preached. That would have been okay because of what we were doing. He says, we could have come here and we could have asked you to serve us. We could have sought you to give us glory for the things we were bringing you, but that wouldn't have been right. We came here selfless to serve you and to preach and to teach and to build you up, give of ourselves and ask nothing in return, not glory, not wealth, not homes, not houses. All we seek is what's right in the kingdom. Paul says in Philippians 3, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a prosecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul goes through this whole verse, this whole chapter in Philippians. He lists off everything he had. He lists off everything he was, and he checks every single box of what was important to the people he was speaking to. And he talks about how everything that they deemed important, everything that they deemed right, everything that they deemed of value, he had, but it is of loss because he did not have Christ at his center. He did not have Jesus at his center. He might have been doing the right things, but they were for the wrong reasons, so it was rubbish. I don't know about you guys, but the temptation for me, if I ever got to a point where at least everyone was saying I was doing the right thing, I don't know if I could change. 
the praise, the admiration, the ease of life that comes with that. And Paul had it all, threw it away, looks down and says, that is rubbish. I count it all as loss for Jesus Christ, and I will do what is right and good and hard and difficult every day of my life. I will travel by sea and by land across this world so that people will know and hear Jesus, and I will serve everywhere I go. I will get bitten by snakes and shipwrecked and jailed, and it doesn't matter because Jesus is what matters. So all of this can be summed up in two ideas. Put others above yourselves. Sacrifice for them. And two, serve God above all else. Anyone who's heard me preach before knows I believe constant reevaluation of our life and our priorities and our goals and our desires is key to a healthy relationship with God. So what I want us to do is I want us to take out that paper Uh, or your phone, or or just try to remember uh, what your last day on earth would look like, right? And if you heard me preach the last time I was here, um, I mentioned a McNeil breakfast, which is just like a banquet of food that my wife and I would make, and uh, mine would, my last day would probably start off with one of those, sitting down with my wife, and uh, I actually wrote this out, you know, I, uh, what, what I would desire my last day to be, and I compared that to Jesus' last day. So Jesus is the only person in history who truly knew that his last day was his last day before it came, right? So Jesus knew that his last day was here, and what he chose to do was wash his disciples' feet, wash Judas's and Peter's alike, the man who betrayed him and the man he would build his church upon. He washed their feet. He took a job that was reserved for the lowest of the low, and he sat down at this table, got on his hands and his knees, and scrubbed their dirty feet. I don't know about you guys, that's not what I wrote down for my last day. If you did, props. But that wouldn't be my first thought, that wouldn't be my second, that wouldn't be my 40th. My last day, and I imagine most of ours, would be filled with family and friends and food and travel and enjoyment and pleasure and entertainment and you keep keep going and the digger you deep bigger you the deeper you dig the more you realize that our goals our desires and our lives are rooted in selfishness at its core and that's a hard thing to change, right? That's not something we can just, oh, I get it. I understand. I'm going to move forward. I'm not selfish anymore. There's a reason why Jesus said, pick up your cross, deny yourself daily, and follow me, because it's something that we have to moment to moment, day by day, week by week, challenge ourselves on, reevaluate ourselves on, think, what am I doing? Am I doing it for the right reasons? Is this good? Is this beneficial? Is this holy? And that is how we truly draw close to God and build up the community of believers. And that's difficult. You know, I've heard, I've, even writing this sermon, it was difficult for me to type out because I realized that I had to live by what I preached, right? I'm writing this out and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do that. And I had to deny myself. And I had to make the conscious decision that I'm going to commit to evaluating my selfish tendencies and start living for what's right and good and holy. 
I want to read to you that passage of Jesus uh, washing the disciples' feet, and then we'll talk a little bit more. John 13 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's verse 1. We're going to skip ahead to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Two things as Carrie makes her way to the platform. First, I already mentioned this, but Jesus washes all the disciples' feet. Before Judas betrays him, before Peter denies him, before half his disciples are are martyred years later for their faith, he washes all of their feet. Second, this job was reserved for the lowest of the low. And Jesus did that for his disciples the day before he knew he was going to die. Verbally and by demonstration, Jesus told his disciples that the only life worth living was to follow him, and to follow him meant our lives shouldn't matter to us, couldn't matter to us. And I realize more and more every day that that's something I have to remind myself of more and more every day. The most challenging and most inspiring example I have uh, outside of the Bible of this is a man called Horatio Spafford. Horatio was a wealthy lawyer in the 1800s who lived in Chicago, and he invested most of his finances in the property surrounding the city. In 1871, the great Chicago fire raged through Illinois, and it devastated all of Horatio's property and killed his two-year-old son. And over the next two years, Horatio started to move his family to Europe. But at the last minute, because of zoning problems, Horatio was called to stay back and let his family go ahead. And while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, his family's vessel was hit by another ship, killing all four of his daughters. Left his wife stranded in Europe. And she managed to get a telegram to him that consisted of two words, saved, alone. And he picked up his things and he got on a ship and he started making his way to Europe to comfort his grieving wife and to try to reassemble their lives back together. And it is on that journey that he was inspired to write the now famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, 
Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. So the question is, how do we get there from where I was? Right? Tragedy strikes and I fall into panic and anxiety and selfishness and depression. And the last thing on my mind was writing a hymn. How do we get to the point where tragedy strikes and we say, God, I trust you. God, this life is not my own. God, I love you and I'm living it for you. And I know that all things will work together in the end. And the only real answer I know is to pick up our cross daily and to follow God and to not deny ourselves daily and follow God. It's not, it's not easy. And we all struggle with it, right? Passing off extra work to another person, a white lie here, a false, oh, I forgot there. It's better to ask forgiveness than permission, right? We've all heard somebody say that. It's better to get what I want and just make people deal with it right? For some reason, it is so hard for us to apply kingdom principles to our everyday, kingdom principles to our everyday. It's hard for us to act like our desires aren't the most important thing in the world. But in order to have a thriving relationship with God, in order to be the church, in order to live truly Christian godly lives, that's what needs to happen. And the good news is that it can happen. The good news is that Jesus died so that it would happen if we did it. Jesus died to give us that strength and that ability. Hebrews says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose strength. The ability is there. The strength is there. The endurance is there. We need to reach out and grab it and act on it and deny ourselves. Because the temptation is going to be to walk outside of this room, to immediately forget the sermon, to have it in our notes for the rest of our lives, and to keep going as we are, to keep moving forward, to keep doing what we've always been doing. But the call of God and the challenge of Scripture is to live our lives for Him daily, moment to moment. Amen? Now compare my reaction to Horatio's, as sad as it is, as difficult as it is for me to say, I wish that I could have got that news and praised God afterwards because I trusted him and because I knew him and because I was confident in him and I wish that my world wasn't shaken and rocked, but it was. but I thank God that he is the God of second and third and 500th chances and that he is consistent and constant and that he never gives up just like I give up on him. Jesus spent his life telling us how to live directly and indirectly, figuratively and literally through example and through teaching calmly and full of passion so that however we learn, however we can grasp what he said, we will know. He showed us, he taught us, and he told us that a life lived abundantly is one that passionately pursues God, one that lives selflessly, and one that lives with eternity in mind instead of the immediate.
I do want to say that God is faithful. My wife and I are expecting our first daughter on August 10th, one year and two days after. One year and two days after we got that bad news. And I don't think anything can ever replace the twins that we lost, but I refuse to let that drive me into a lifeless existence. I refuse to love my life so much that I end up losing it. And I refuse to forget that if I'm not pursuing God at all times, when things inevitably go wrong, when things inevitably happen that are terrible, terrible tragedies, then I'm going to slip back into that doubt and that panic and that fear. So I'm going to pray and Carrie's going to play a song. Uh, I don't want to dismiss you guys just yet. I want you to sit and listen to it as well and think and reflect about your lives, your actions, your thoughts, your desires and weigh them against Scripture, weigh them against the example set forth and try every day and every moment to seek after God. Lord, thank you for your word, for your constant reassurance, for your constant strength, for dying to give us that strength, for living so that we may have an example. Lord, thank you for being an ever-present hope in a time of need. Help us to remember that you are always there to reach out to, to grab onto. But also help us to remember that it is just as important to seek you now as it is during tragedy and just as important to seek you tomorrow as it is in times of joy. Let us see you, God. Let us know you more and more every day, I pray in your name. Amen.